right. Hey, I'm Scotty Young, and you are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... There's a point in Oliver where he's trying to turn the tide on on that grim reality. He wants to rise above it. He's trying to bring... You know, he stands up and starts to fight back, and I think that that's where those kind of stories lead us to a utopia. You can't have a utopia if you're not willing to fight for peace. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Shiri Sondheimer. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. Find us on socials at thegbbpodcast. You can find the podcast to download from anywhere you get podcasts all over the interwebs. I'm Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. And joining me this week is Shiri. You're back again. I'm back uh, you know again. What? I, don't, I feel like you've just become like the regular co-host and anybody else is a special guest star. Aw, I can live with that. Yeah, I figured you could. I like being here. <laughs> we like having you. Aw. Uh, this week, we talked to Gary Witta and Derek Robertson. Derek Robertson. We had Gary on the show, God, three, like three years ago? Four years ago? I think it was four years ago. I think it was 2015. It was when his novel, Abomination, first came out, and we talked a lot about that. It was also in the months um, following his writing Rogue One, but it was before Rogue One had actually come out. My favorite um, Star Wars. Yeah, one of my top three. Um, but we, anyway, if you haven't listened to that conversation, go back and listen to it because it was really good. It was pre-Rogue One and we were just kind of talking rumors and the story had changed quite a bit from what he had originally written. Um, but we talked about his book there. So if you haven't read Abomination, I do recommend it and go back and listen to that episode. But today... We had on Gary and Derek Robertson together to talk about their new comic series, their new graphic novel, Oliver. And at this point, I'm going to shut up and let Shiri take over. You're going to shut up and let me take over? No, I'm going to let you take over. Uh, Well, the quick rundown of issue number one is with no, with, I mean, relatively few spoilers. (laughs) You can't sum with no spoilers, I suppose, (laughs) is that there has been a big giant radioactive war. Um... And it is very rare for natural humans to be born any longer. Uh, And we are uh, getting a story told from the point of view of a group of clone soldiers that has... Although they they never call them clones. They don't call them clones. But that's what they are. But that's what they are. That has been bred to survive this radioactive incident uh, and brought to them is a baby who they name Oliver. Right. And so the, the, the story, the first issue that is out uh, this week takes place in this section. It's basically like an irradiated ghetto of London that nobody else can live in because the radiation levels are too high. But because these engineered soldiers are immune to it, they are just sent there to 
basically live until they die because the rest of the world doesn't want to deal with them anymore because the war is over. Um, and the whole setup is that we get this child who was born to a mother, but seems to be uh, immune as well. And that's um, basically what is set up in the first issue. It's of what will ultimately be 12 issues right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we'll wait to see if it goes beyond that. But the story that they're telling is it's a 12 issue series out monthly from image. Um, and it was really good. It was really good. Right? It was really it was good. Really good. And one of the big themes they're dealing with, and I would not say that this is a spoiler because it's one of the big themes that, that Gary tends to deal with in all of his writing is that, no matter, and this is an important theme right now, I think, is that no matter how bad things seem, because he tends toward the dystopian, as does Derek in his writing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but they both gravitate towards stories where no matter how bad things are, there is always hope. Yep. So this is very much set, this is a dys- dystopic, dystopic, dystopic. It's a dystopia yeah. uh, this, in, in terms of setting, but the story that they're telling is very hopeful. Yep. Um, and even in the first issue, you can see that it is setting up a hopeful story. And in the conversation we had with the two of them, it is very clear that that is their intention, that they are telling a hopeful story. Um, and, you know, like you said, both of their oeuvre, both of the, 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 the projects that they've worked on, whether they're novels or films or, or comics, um, they tend to run in a similar theme. They're, they're very hopeful despite a setting that might not inherently feel very hopeful on the surface. Yeah. It's an emerging, it's actually an emerging sort of subgenre. Yeah, what what of, did he call it? Ho- like hope, hope punk. punk. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually going to do some research and write an article for book, Ride about it. Definitely. So, and let me, and we'll let you all know we'll when that goes up so you can go, go, go listen to it. But uh, we're going to shut up and go straight into the conversation with Gary and Derek. It's a fantastic conversation. Um, you're, if you did not pick up Oliver this week, head out to your friendly neighborhood comic store, pick it up. You're going to get it on the ground floor of what promises to be an amazingly fun, thrilling, hopeful story. And you will not be disappointed. I promise you. Um, until next week, we've got so many great conversations coming up. Some I can't tell you about, some I wish I could tell you about. Um, but we've got all kinds of conversations, musicians, actors, writers, artists, uh, you name it. They're all coming up. And um, I'm just so excited that 2019 is shaping up to be pretty awesome so far, at least with respect to this show. Uh, I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. You can find the show at The GBB Podcast. And you can find Shiri at, at SW Sondheimer on Twitter and irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. Thanks for coming back, guys. Thanks for hitting subscribe. Thanks for telling people about us. We really appreciate it. And we love you. Until next week, take care. Bye. One of the things I like to, or I get curious about when I when we talk to the teams of authors, illustrators, or people who work together, is how the project sort of landed in both of your laps. Did you guys pitch Oliver together, or did Image hook you up once they'd read the script, or, or how did that come about, the, the two of you working together on this? It, it actually has been a long journey for us to find the right fit. Uh, it started with Gary contacting me cold back when I lived in New York. And uh, I didn't know him at all. He just got a hold of me through the email. And um, 
but I, I, we hit it off immediately and became friends. I couldn't take the project back when he first proposed it. It was based on the screenplay that he had written. And I could see the merit of it immediately. And I, I, but I didn't want to leave him out in the cold. So I tried to find another artist for him that could work on it because I was finishing up Transmetropolitan and had just been offered Wolverine and was in the middle of doing some Punisher issues for, uh, for Marvel. So I was like really, you know, up to my nose in great projects at the time. But I loved the idea and I could see what I'd do with it. But um, it really came down to uh, timing. And then a couple years later, or sometime later, when I moved back to the Bay Area where Gary was living, um, we revisited it. And he said, no, I hadn't got it set up anywhere. I thought he just went on his own with it. And so I said, well, let's do this. But that was like forever ago. And then it was <laughs> another decade of trying to just find the time for it and then find the right publisher. Because every time we'd almost get it set up somewhere, there would always be this caveat like where okay well we'll do it but we're going to change the title or we'll do it but we're going to take all your rights and we can't guarantee gary being the screenwriter and i'm like it's based on his screenplay (laughs) how can it it not be he why can't we get in the contract that he's the screenwriter and the thinking there was like well if we get a big director they might want to work with a certain screenwriter i'm like all right i see the the merit of that down the road but we're just trying to get the comic made at this point. Yeah. And so that's what's beautiful about Image Comics and why I love working with them is that they are really clean and just like, no, this is your property. We publish it. The numbers are real clean. And we get to do what we want. So by waiting and by being patient, we're making the comic that we imagined. And that's that, that that's the best part of this project for me. And then we've only become better friends in the process. So it's been a double a double blessing. Yeah, as Derek says, it's been uh, it's been a really long road. As he mentioned, this started out as a um, as what's known as a spec screenplay, which is a, scre- a screenplay that you just go away and write. No one asks you or pays you to write it. You just kind of write it and hope that someone's going to like it and, and want to make it. That's how the Book of Eli started as well. It's just mm-hmm. me just kind of hammering away, hoping that somebody would would think it was it was uh, cool as as much as I did. <laughs> um, Oliver was actually the first thing that I wrote that got me a manager and got me representation and kind of got me started in in Hollywood but the problem with big kind of splashy high concept original science fiction is unless it comes from a kind of a marquee filmmaker like a Chris Nolan or a JJ or someone like that it's very very difficult it was difficult 15 years ago and it's difficult now like I challenge you to to tell me like what was the last big original science fiction movie you saw at the at the movies that wasn't based on a book or wasn't you know, a TV show or a remake or a reboot or an adaptation or a sequel. They're very, very, very few. And that was when I when it was first coming up as a writer, I hadn't yet really learned that lesson. So I wrote Oliver as a big, expensive feature film um, without really realizing that it was very, very unlikely to ever get made. And that's basically kind of what happened. You know, about a dozen different people read it. And if nobody wants to take the risk of spending, you know, 50, 60, 70 million dollars getting it made, then it's probably not going to get made. And so the script was just kind of sitting there gathering dust. And it was really frustrating me because it was a story I really, really wanted to tell. And were I, were I to have the idea today, I probably wouldn't write it as a feature film. I probably would write it uh, first off as a comic book because it takes um, much less kind of collaborative effort. You know, the, 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 the work of making a feature film is literally hundreds of people and millions and millions of dollars to make it as a comic book. It's really just me and Derek and Diego and Simon. And, you know, you can, even though it's, it's often harder for Derek to draw, you know, very elaborate battle scenes and a lot of the big action that we have in the comic, it's not any more expensive 
to 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 quote unquote shoot that for a comic book than it is uh you know for a film that can be really expensive but for a film basically every page um technically costs the same so we were able to kind of make it real in a, in a way that was financially and economically viable and more importantly just gets the story told i just it's so frustrating for a storyteller to write a movie that nobody ever sees or reads and so the big idea was well hold on this could work just as well as a comic book structurally it actually breaks down really well into an episodic comic format so that was that was what we did we broke the comic down into 12 issues uh, so i'm seeing the original movie script kind of stripped it down to its bare elements and rebuilt it from the ground up um as as comic scripts as comic issues uh and went from there and now 15 years later 16 years later it's finally coming out as a comic and that's the big relief for me of course the funny thing is now that it's actually a comic now we have people sniffing around saying oh you know other screen rights are <laughs> <laughs> now that's, they want to make the movie because if, if you do it as an original uh spec nobody pays any attention but if it's a comic if it's a piece of underlying intellectual property if it's something that already exists and now oh now it's an adaptation of the you know hopefully best-selling comic it becomes a different uh, proposition entirely that for me is not the end game for me the end game is just getting the comic book into stores and finding an audience for the story in whatever format i'll 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 be thrilled when next wednesday when the comic is in stores but if people do start asking us if there is a movie or a tv version to be made that's great, but it really is just gravy. That to me is a is 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 a bonus above and beyond the actual win of getting the comic published. Yeah, yeah bonus for you. You wrote Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking for more bonuses. <laughs> what are some of the similarities and differences between writing a screenplay and writing a comic script? Comic script. I assume there are some some similarities. You know, the way that I had, Derek's been incredibly um, helpful to me in this process in that I'm not, when I, when I first started working with Derek, I said, look, the way that I'm going to give you these scripts is I don't think I'm going to break them down traditionally into, you know, panel one, panel two, panel three, because I just don't necessarily, that's not my native language. My first language is, is screenwriting and understanding the cadence and the rhythm and and the language of, of how you write on the page for the screen. That's very different for how you write on the page for an artist to draw. Uh, but it's not necessarily the narrative flow of what you see from one panel to another is just something that as much as I'm an avid reader of comics, I didn't feel particularly well qualified uh, to decide that for myself. So I said to Derek, look, I'll break this down into kind of chunks of pages and give you the basic action and the dialogue. But in terms of deciding, you know, what what you know, what's the, what's the camera angle in this panel? When do we go to panel two to panel three? How the dialogue breaks down from panel to panel? I actually left that mostly to to Derek because he's been yeah. doing comics for years and just has a much better instinct. That is his first language, and so um, you know the the general kind of story flow and the general narrative flow of uh, of individual scenes was defined by me in the script, but the actual sequential panel to panel work was all broken down um, by Derek. And I'm incredibly grateful to have a collaborator like him who's willing to take some of that burden off of me and do the sequential work because, I, like I said, I, I think if, I, if, if Derek had insisted, oh, no, you've got to do it, you've got to put it into panels for me because that's just how I work, I'm sure I could have done it, but the sequential flow of it would not have felt as natural and it would not have felt as cinematic as what Derek was able to come up with because it's, it's, it's his, that's his territory that I'm working in. And that's actually been a real plus for me because uh, I've got uh, sort of a firsthand knowledge and learning about how uh, closely screenplays and comic book scripts do overlap. Because right? ultimately, 
uh, I don't really need to be told where to make breaks. Even when I'm working with an established comic book art uh, writer that is used to writing comic book scripts, I'll still add a panel or take out a panel or suggest things uh, back to them and say, hey, what if we move this scene over to the next page so it's a bigger reveal? That's my. I've been doing this for years, so for me, that's natural. So we're at this point, in the first couple issues, we were very careful about how we're pulling things apart. But now that I'm into the fourth issue, uh, I'm pretty clear on what Gary wants, and I just basically ask for approval to make sure I'm not going off the the rails with where he sees it. But in general, I'm able to kind of break it down just based on the screenplay at this point, and that's incredibly freeing because we also found out with the we have a luxury with uh, image that if we need a couple more pages or you know in in an issue, we have them to use. Like it's our call on that. It's it's very free creatively, and I like that a lot. It's also I think. I, it's it's also I think more liberating for Derek to be able to kind of define that panel flow, yeah. for himself. When I when I first started, I, uh, I I literally bought a book on how to write comics because I had no idea what I was doing. It was called Panel One, <laughs> and it was it was it was a bunch of different comic um, writers showing their pages and how they write their 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 comics. And what I was really struck by, uh, the writers that do write for panels and do, do do write Panel One, Panel Two, Panel Three. It's it it seems like as an artist, I wouldn't necessarily. I don't know if I'd have a lot of fun drawing scripts that are, that, are, that are that rigidly defined. Like if you look at, say, a Warren Ellis script or an Alan Moore script or, or, or what have you, they're extremely detailed in terms of, okay, here's panel one. This is an over-the-shoulder an over the shoulder shot. You know, it's dim light. There's, you can only see the back of the character's head, and this is the dialogue or whatever. Panel two, okay, now we see the second character, and you know, it's a side-by-side shot or whatever. All the art direction, all the cinematography, all the editing, everything's being done by the writer. And it seems like at that point, all that's really left for the artist to do is to kind of trace, essentially, what was already the, the kind of the visual picture that, is, that, that, the, that the writer had has painted to, in very, 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 very detailed speci- specificity um, in that panel-to-panel format. So I just, I just kind of felt that not only did it take some of the burden off me to get the panel flow right, but it also let Derek uh, feel a little bit more liberated and a little bit more loose in him deciding how he felt uh, the action should be staged rather than me dictating everything on the page in the, with the written word. Yeah, in my experience, and since I worked with Warren and and co-created with him, it's it's actually it really comes down to the individual writer. Everybody's got their own style, and most writers that I've worked with uh, are really open-minded, and they don't they're rarely as rigid as I, I understand Alan Moore to be. I haven't had the pleasure of working with him, <laughs> but I understood. But I did see some of his uh, his script for um, Watchmen, and I see how Dave. Uh, Mary meticulously stuck to those nine panel grids. That was important to Alan. Alan can draw a little bit. He's not known for it. Um, but I could see why he had a very clear vision on what he wanted it to look like. And only once in a while would Warren Ellis come in and say, I want it just like this. But most of the time, he would just... he As soon as we got a few issues into Transmetropolitan, he actually was a lot like what Gary is saying. Like, oh no, Derek's got this. I trust him. So he would write less and less. So it would become... There's like a scene in in issue eight that I like to show as an example where I did this big splash page with the city and everything. And the only description of that splash page that I put all this detail and signage and people walking around and all this crazy detail that I like to do. uh, Warren's description was a big shot of the city. Make it loud and noisy. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like one sentence. It seems like it's very dependent on the team. Um, like I interviewed Tom King and Mitch Jarrods uh, together at 
San Diego this past year. And, you know, they're very flexible with each other. But I've interviewed other teams um, that are, it's very much like the writer sends the pages to the artist and the artist does the pages and sends them back. And it's it's interesting to to hear how different teams function. Well, it helps if you have a good relationship with the person you're working with. If you if you communicate comfortably, and uh, they like that kind of. Not everybody likes to collaborate. I love to collaborate. Gary likes to collaborate. So we've had a very good time. Like I, it, I get excited when I'm getting another page penciled or another page inked, and I can show him some progress and see his reaction. That that keeps me going. So I, for me, I love that kind of interaction. Yeah, I think it really helps. I think that both the both of us being in the Bay Area, when we first started writing the comic together, we we were able to actually get together, uh, sometimes in Derek's office, sometimes in my office, and and actually literally sit together in the same room. And I would kind of peek over Derek's shoulder as he was drawing. And we haven't done that for every issue, but we did it for we certainly did it for issue one, and that and that kind of set the tone for our collaboration going forward. And it strikes me as really strange that some collaborators, you know, artists and writer teams don't ever really talk to each other or their communication might just be over email. And again, maybe that works perfectly well for them, but it, it strikes me as, 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 as a great benefit to the particular collaboration that Derek and I had that we were, you know, personally friends. So we're able to kind of speak, you know, home truths to each other. If it's something I don't like or something he doesn't agree with, we'll, we'll tell each other. Um, and, and also uh, to have that, uh, kind of that camaraderie and that sense of, you know, being, I can always just, you know, oftentimes I'll just, you know, Derek, as you mentioned, will constantly kind of text me with with images of new panels and new pages that he's done that he's proud of. And I'll text back, you know, kind of the heart emojis and things because I'm so <laughs> happy with the work that he's doing. Um, and, I, and if ever I need to pick up the phone and write, you know, literally like 10 minutes before this podcast, Derek and I were on the phone talking about some issue related to like one of the variant covers for, for an issue that's coming up. We were um, kind of collaborating on the notes that we wanted to give back to the variant artist on, on what we wanted to see uh, for a variant cover. So it's a very, very close collaboration. I, I, I would suggest I'm not, I'm not an expert. I don't have a lot to compare it to, but I would suggest that it's a closer collaboration in terms of the dynamics of the relationship than most writer artist teams out there I would, I would, a lot of the times i'm sorry i was just going to interject that a lot of times um an editor will be just the the in-between person and sometimes i'll never talk to a writer at all because the editor is handling everything and the writer might be somebody who's too busy to talk directly so that and those collaborations are my least favorite because i may like the editor just fine but i like to know what's going on in the writer's head and if i have a question or i want to make a change i don't like having a middle person um, interpreting that that question for me because sometimes coming from an editor I think some writers can feel um, I don't know in, like, like I'm second guessing them or I'm making this demand like I'm going to change this and if they don't get to chime in on it it can create a resentment that shouldn't be there yeah I, I would say we've talked to a lot of writer artist teams uh just for this podcast in, that work in, in graphic novels and by far you guys sound like you've had the closest relationship most people that we talk to are, are either on opposite sides of the country or other opposite sides of the world or they just pass email notes back and forth to each other i think you guys are the first people we've ever talked to that have actually sat in the same room to create <laughs> <laughs> We need to do more of that. <laughs> yeah, seriously, we do. Especially I mean, getting an issue. We're, we're not that far apart. Derek's up in Napa and I'm here in San Francisco. So we're really not that far um, from one another. Maybe what we should do, Derek, is because we're about to start work on the second story arc pretty soon, is, is do that again. Kind of yeah. get back in get back in the same room and, and, uh, do story, and start story arc two collaboratively in the room the same way we did story arc one. 
the I wanted to ask about the story because you used the word earlier. I'm pretty sure Gary, you said it was cinematic, and I mean it makes sense for this story considering its history and you know Gary, your experiences in Hollywood. But it makes this story feels at least the first issue that I've read. It feels very cinematic. You know, your art and it, it alternates between these sweeping vistas of this ruined city and then these more personal, intimate scenes of, of one or two characters. Um, and it's something that, you know, a lot of times that word cinematic is used, but I really felt it when I was watching, watching, see, I just said watching, I was reading it, it felt like I was watching something. Is that something that you guys keep in mind when you're, when you're creating? I know you said that, you know, seeing it on the big screen or having it adapted is not the end game. The end game here with this specific story is the book, but is that something that you're keeping in mind as you're telling the story in a visual format, that it, it needs to be cinematic? I specifically wanted it to be very cinematic because I knew I was adapting a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like if it didn't, uh, if it looked too much like a comic, it wouldn't read correctly. I wanted it to feel like you like an opening of a movie, and that's why I, I, I had the fortune of uh, being invited to a convention in London about the time I was getting into the hard artwork after years of designing and talking back and forth with Gary, trying to get a start on our book. Um, I went to London for a convention and was able to go and do that walk um, for, through Trafalgar Square with my camera. And, you know, so what's over her shoulder, what's over or what's over the character's shoulder, what's over the what's in the background to the left and to the right at 360 degrees. I could draw that when I got home and, and look at that. And I took a ton of reference photos that now I'm drawing into issue four and I'm just able to take them. And I just w- walked around the city streets of London taking photographs of everything. And I'll be able to put some of those details in, but in it and then destroy it, which is a lot of fun to do. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I'm originally from London. So it was important to me that the, that the geography not, not come across like some weird kind of Americanized mm-hmm. amalgam of what, of what the geography looks like the, the route that she takes into, into it's just the opening pages, but you know, just little details like that are important. You know, from the M25 across Westminster Bridge, uh, Trafalgar Square, and eventually into the part of London where you know Oliver meets his what will become his new family. Um, it was it was important to me that that felt uh, authentic, and that someone in the UK reading the comic would not would not look at it and go, oh well, here are all the things wrong with that geography. Right. So I wanted to make sure that just in terms of you know the, 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 making sure that the everything wrong with crowd had nothing to complain about uh, was <laughs> was important, but also. Um, yeah, you're right. There is, it is a very cinematic look. You know, the, the project has cinematic roots. Derek and I are both uh, movie buffs, and I think that um, you know the the one of the one of the beauties of of comics is that you know it can be widescreen, it can be four by three, it can be whatever you, you it, it can be whatever you want it to be. It's it's really interesting that in television and in film you basically have um, a static. You know, essentially kind of a, a 16 by 9 frame that you're that you're working within um, and you can do wonderful things within that frame but the frame is always the frame mm-hmm. um, but with panels obviously you you have the luxury of deciding um, you know what you what format you want each panel to be like it's, it's essentially you get to change the size and the shape and the and the aspect ratio of the cinema screen for every individual shot which is an amazing luxury that we have in comics that filmmakers don't have yeah um well, let's talk about the story just a little bit. I mean, we we don't tend to dive too much into the weeds, but um, it would not be incorrect to call this a post-apocalyptic story, correct? There has definitely been an apocalypse. Okay. So, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I guess, is there is there an expiration date on apocalyptic? 
stories or post-apocalyptic stories because I feel like in 2019 the apocalypse doesn't really seem as far-fetched as it once did you know you, you watch something <laughs> yeah. like Bird Box or, or The Walking Dead or you read something like Oliver and or I the feel, news or just the news you know and I feel like we're just a few more years <laughs> of a, a junkie yeah like we're, we're just a few more years of a Trump administration away from these becoming documentaries you know like like they're, they're not going to be fantasy they're just going to be like oh yeah that, that's next year like is there going to be a turning point where we start to see more like stories about peaceful utopias and happy land? You know, I mean, I'm, I was thinking about that recently because, you know, like when we started this so long ago that it did seem more far fetched when we were beginning. Same thing with Transmetropolitan. Like, I didn't think I'd be living half of that reality, <laughs> but here I am. Um, but at the same time, I wonder what it's going to take because if you look at the world through the decades, uh, we had kind of a moment of that in, I would say, the mid to late 70s after Watergate in Vietnam. Uh, the American culture got very saccharine. You had, like in music, everything kind of got soft rock, and you had uh, the Starlight vocal band, the big hit in the nation was Afternoon Delight, you know, yeah. where up until that it was like Deep Purple and <laughs> Iron Maiden, <laughs> and, you know, that stuff was dominating the early 70s when things were more chaotic. I think people, I think culturally, people do seek those things out and what i would say uh about our story is that oliver is a symbol of hope in a world like that so it's there's a point in oliver where he's trying to turn the tide on on that grim reality he wants to rise above it he's trying to bring you know he stands up and starts to fight back and i think that that's where those kind of stories lead us to a utopia. You can't have a utopia if you're not willing to fight for peace. Yeah, I think, I, and, and to that point, uh, ironically, I think, it's, I think it's a mistake to conflate the, the you know, the, the post-apocalyptic milieu with with necessarily like a grim, hopeless tone every time. It's always it's always a grim mm. landscape, and things are definitely pretty bleak. But I think you know, in the in the movies that I, the post-apocalyptic movies that I like the most, and I think of things like Children of Men. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of mid-apocalyptic, but still, you know, very, very dark. That's such um, a good movie. <laughs> yeah. Such a movie. And if you remember, it it ends. That movie is all about hope. It's all about it's all about this green, this, you know, this in, in a world in which no one can have children anymore. This woman has a child, and it becomes this incredible uh, vessel of hope, and that you know, that, that Clive Owen's trying to protect through the whole movie. And it ends in a in a hopeful way. You know, the Book of Eli ends on a hopeful Spoilers. note. Spoilers. <laughs> you know, I always feel there's like a statue of limit, statue of limitations. Yeah. No, if you I've seen it. the movie by now. How much can you really care about spoilers? <laughs> oddly, oddly, uh, I was I was just watching Rogue One again the other night. And and, and 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 that and that's and that's a movie that has kind of a grim tone, right? Because you're under the oppressive heel of the Empire, and of course, that whole movie is about hope. It's literally leading you up to a movie called A New a Hope. New hope. Yeah. So the whole spoilers point is trying to get rebellions are built on hope and all that good stuff. So I think that I I actually think that the reverse is true. That the the, the bleaker and the grimmer uh, your your landscape is, uh, the more opportunity there is for moments of hope to shine through in contrast to that kind of gray landscape. Like if you think, if you imagine like a barren, barren field, uh, just kind of like a, a gray, dirty field that, that doesn't look like anything will grow. If a green shoot of a plant starts to pop through, you'll notice it. Cause it's the only one there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true as well to, to Derek's point. He gave a, an interview the other day where he said something I thought that was, that was really poignant where he said, you know, this is a world where everyone is used to looking down. Oliver makes them want to look up. And I think that's the whole idea, you know, the 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 cover 
of issue one yeah. is Oliver kind of, you know, almost kind of flying across, you know, upwards through the panel. He's ascendant. Uh, and, I think that's, I, and I think that's the that's the whole idea is that even though it's a bleak world um, in the in those worlds, we look for uh, characters and vessels of, of uh, and avatars of hope. And that's certainly what Oliver is, is intended to be. That's what I saw in your story when I originally read it. And so that's why I thought even for the cover to number one, I wanted something sort of almost angelic because the rest of the story can be it gets really grim. And uh, I, but I wanted it to be clear, even from the moment you open the book, like the first time you see Oliver, that it's you know there's birds taking flight, the sun is coming up. It's 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 going to be you know he's got a challenge ahead of him, and and he's young in the first issue too. He's just a boy in the first issue. He uh, he accelerates in age very quickly throughout the four issues because of s- spoilers. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he. Uh, but but he'll look differently as the story progresses rather quickly. So by the end of issue four, he's going to look more like our our main, closer to our main design. He'll be fully realized in issue five, the way that in um, one of my favorite uh, comics ever, Man Without Fear, uh, by Frank Miller and and John Romita Jr. back in the day. What was wonderful about that is you see Matt Murdock as a boy and what he has to overcome, and then he dons this early version of Daredevil's costume when it's just functional, much in the way you see they did uh, very well in the TV show. Rest in peace. Um, <laughs> but now. they had, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's see what happens. Uh, but I love the way that uh, you see that evolution of a character. To me, that's very poignant. And since we're doing this in twelve issues, um, I thought it was brilliant that we take our time and you see, literally, from the moment Oliver's born up into when he makes his, when he when he come, becomes fully realized, like what that journey takes him through. So you have a better idea by the time it's you get to issue five who he is and what he's up against. Um, and in that regard, it's 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 better to take your time rather than. I think I lost my point, but I think uh, it's better to take. <laughs> yeah. That's why I draw instead of talk. <laughs> it's well, better, but I want. Oh, I'm sorry. I know what it was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. That's why I wanted it to be very clear, though, that you're not in for a long, hard slog of just misery. It's there's there's something good that's going to come from this. Well, I mean, so if you go on the journey with them. Neither one of you are strangers to dystopias. You know, you you you've both worked in that genre if you want to call it a genre you, you in that vein for in in the past so is it that that sense of hope that makes it such an appealing setting for you well i i found for me uh with transmetropolitan i didn't really see that as dystopian i saw that as more satire and and than it was dystopian because people were are alive and well in that world it's 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 just crazier than the world we live in at least it was um <laughs> but you would walking down the street you know through i wouldn't want to live in spider's city but at the same time he can get food he can get water he's got a decent apartment it's there's an economy working if you need a cab or you want to eat in a restaurant you can do all those things in spider jerusalem's reality it's just there's different things to speak out about and things that we took and twisted and parodied in order to kind of bring a focus in what we were seeing happen in the nineties. But, um, and you know, if anything, we were kind of a flashback on what happened under Nixon, but uh, that, cause that's what Hunter S Thompson was known for writing about. And he was sort of our mascot, um, along with a bunch of other very brilliant journalists that Warren turned me on to. But, 
with Oliver, it's it's definitely after there's been a war. There's been uh, there are people that can't you you can't live where Oliver lives because the air is radiated. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it's much more darker and grim in this story than anything I think I've worked on before. Yeah, has, as far as setting goes, right? Has have have any of the I and mean, we've talked a little bit about things that you guys have done before, but are there properties that you've worked on that have influenced um, the way that you're telling this story? That you know, you go back to something that you did before, and you think, you know, what something we did there is really applicable to to, to Oliver, and you know, you, you find yourself returning to those older pieces or older projects in order to tell this story. It's it for for me. It's hard. It, it's 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 hard to answer that because Oliver is one of my earlier stories. Right. Actually, like I said, it's one of the one of the first things that I um, that I wrote back when I was first breaking into the business, and it's I think it's aged fairly well. I haven't had to to kind of rewrite or retool it to any uh, significant ex- significant extent. Although you know, as we're going forward, I mean, I'm literally watching kind of Brexit chaos. You know, the whole country collapsing on on TV right now in the in the corner of my office as I'm, as I'm talking to you, just chaotic scenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Derek and I talked about things like that. Like, do we? You know, is is there some kind of um, you know, we're, 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 seeing Britain now in a, in a kind of destroyed, uh, state in the comic and, you know, and, and, and even as, uh, you know, 10 years later from originally writing it, I'm seeing Britain kind of seemingly destroying itself. So Derek and I, Derek and I have had conversations about, uh, whether or not there are kind of, you know, things in the, in the current, in, in current affairs and in the way that the world has evolved over the past 10, 15 years that make us feel, um, that you know that 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 would that would add to the tapestry of the post-apocalyptic world that we've that we've created for this. But to go back to your earlier point, I wanted to talk about. It's really interesting because again, I think it all comes back to that idea of hope and uh, referencing other projects. You know, Rogue One was such a again, that movie is so so much about hope. I, I, I struggle to to think of another movie that is more about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know how many times we say the word hope in that movie, but it's a lot. <laughs> Um, and like I said, le- just leading into a movie that's literally called A New Hope. I don't know if you've if you've heard about this. I kind of cringe a little bit when I say it, but there's there's a there's there's a there's a new subgenre um, emerging called hope punk. Which yeah, is, have you heard about this? Which 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 is you know a, a move. I guess I guess it's a sh- it, it's a shorthand for saying optimistic science fiction, like more more huh. positive, forward looking science fiction. Not always drowning in dystopia. Mm-hmm. Not always not always um, drowning in you know bleak and grim violence and horrible stuff like that. But trying to find you know getting back to kind of the Roddenberry model of trying to find find things that are more hopeful expressions of of, of our possible futures and th- and I it's 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 something that I definitely have found myself uh, gravitating more towards since I became um, a parent hmm. uh, that you you know once you once you start seeing the world through the eyes of of your kids um, you start to want to try to not just uh, create a better future for them but almost imagine also imagine better possible futures through through the through the kind of work that we create so again i'm doing that right now with a novel that i'm writing again it's 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 essentially kind of a bleak landscape but it's not a bleak story it's again it's a story about people trying to find hope in areas where it doesn't seem like there isn't any and and again i actually think that's the most hopeful message is that hope can be found even in places where you wouldn't expect to find it right that's what i think the heart of this story is i that's one of the things that um i i I think it's funny how these 
whatever addendum we can put punk on we've sort of stumbled <laughs> into in the decade that we've been working on this like hey i could put steampunk elements in this and like hey now it's home punk elements <laughs> but those things existed outside of our original concept before we started so yeah i think that that's a really important thing is that the way you get to a more hopeful future is through imagination i don't think anything good that's ever happened in the world just happened by accident somebody had to dream that up and then pursue it let me follow that up with another Star Wars question. Then. <laughs> um, as Jamie and I were reading this, um, we noticed that that the clones um, bear a little bit of a resemblance to the clones, especially from the Clone Wars. Um, but it's interesting because the clones there, they don't really get hope. They don't get an after. Um, but these clones, despite their after being pretty horrible, they do get one. So is is there an element of that of that hope? Is this you know kind of giving an element of hope to those clones? You know, it's interesting. Um, it's 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 funny. I never when I was writing, I I, I wrote Oliver in early um, right, right. early two thousand. So it was uh, it was after the, you know the idea of the Clone Wars had been kind of fleshed out uh, in the movies, or it was around about that same time. When when did the I can't remember when the prequels came out. It was like late ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. So the so so that I so that idea I think had just been fully fleshed out shortly before I was writing Oliver. But I never really thought about them in the in the in the in the same way. They're never called clones in the comic, uh, even though I guess that's kind of technically what they are. The idea that was actually a really fun visual challenge for us. The idea is like in a movie version of this, like they're all the same actor, and you would just use visual effects um, to kind of to to composite them together because they are they are basically one model. Um, and for Derek, he, he hit upon the brilliant idea of giving each of them a different scar or an injury. Like one of them's got an eye patch. One of them's got a burned face. One of them's got scars across his face. One of them's missing one arm. Uh, and all of those, and all those different differentiators allow you to kind of, Oh, that one's Prospero or that one's Banquo or that one's Horatio. So you know, who's who, even though they're all essentially the same kind of, you know, Bruce Millis one, Bruce Willis one Oh one combat model. <laughs> Um, and so I never thought about it in the same way, but it's an interesting point that you raise that they do have an after, but the whole point of it is really kind of, well, what does come after? What happens after you serve your country in a war? And I think there's a little bit, I, I don't know if I was ever really like fully conscious of it, but looking back on it now, I think there's a little bit of, um, of a treatise in there, a little bit of, of, of tub thumping about, you know, we should treat, uh, people who serve our country better than we do. You know, we see here, even in America, a country that is fully, um, well, actually, isn't at the moment fully funded, but you know, it's theoretically fully funded <laughs> and operational. Um, you know, the one thing that we should be able to do is is take care of people that have uh, that have been horrendously uh, scarred, both both physically and, emo and emotionally, uh, fighting ostensibly, you know, for for truth, justice, in the American way, and all that good stuff in foreign countries. And they come back here, and they often don't get even basic medical care, and they get very easily forgotten about, and are only ever really celebrated when they're being used as political pawns around election time and i find that very depressing and i think if i i think if i was trying to say anything it was it was really that about how people who work hard and who serve their country often find themselves on the scrap heap and this is kind of the extreme version of this the idea of these these cloned soldiers who go away and fight in the most horrific war imaginable and then when the war is over come home and find uh, a country that doesn't want them because well, they less, were only ever, they, they were only ever designed to fight in the war. There wasn't really meant to be much of an after. And when they did come home, uh, the, the 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 nation, the society didn't really know what to do with them. So they just get thrown into these horrific kind of you know ir irradiated ghettos and and basically kind of left to perish. We're just waiting for them to die. 
So that is, that is really just kind of, you know, I think science fiction always does well when it puts a, a spotlight on issues that we see currently in the world around us, but but viewing them through a magnified lens, an amplified lens that allows us to kind of blow things out to kind of crazy extremes and really kind of hammer the point home. And I think, if anything, that's what I was doing with the idea of the clone combatants in in Oliver was trying to make a point about how um, you know we should treat these people a little with with a a little more respect and dignity. That's what I wanted to do with by wounding them too, because I wanted each one of them to sort of reflect that they had their own journey, their own story. So even if they all look alike, you know, they aren't mindless, they aren't faceless, they are actually are, you know, these even if they're manufactured, they're human beings. And and Gary does a wonderful job of giving them such deep personality that you can tell they all have individual thought. They don't work as a hive mind in any capacity, which is uh, which exemplifies a reason to give them their own individual journey. I just figured too, if you know anybody who are like identical twins, they're never quite identical. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always there's always tells on them. And a lot of times, if you've known, if you've ever been friends with twins, I went to high school with a couple of identical twins. They hated being identical twins. Uh, not uh, not all of them do, but these guys did. And they always made a point. Like one was kind of like more rock and roll and punk, and the other one was very straight-laced and preppy and so you always knew which twin was which because they had very different they wanted to be seen as individuals they didn't like the fact that they had this you know clone of themselves walking around the school and and they didn't want to be confused for their brother so you know i thought that that's you know when you see that kind of thing i think that that would be the same thing within a clone army that they would want to say hey i'm i'm my own person as well and the the story is a Dickensian reference, but the clone soldiers have names from Shakespeare. What what drove that decision? I think you know if we if if, if, if I think if we'd have picked Dickensian literature, it would have been too much of a um, it would have, it would have seemed like a little too meta, a little too uh, <laughs> self referencing. But the idea is again to follow on from Derek's point. This is I, I thought it was quite genius of 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 him to. Because I, I think it was his idea, and, and so I'm quite comfortably calling it genius because it wasn't me that came up with it. Of like, let's give them all <laughs> these specific kind of physical differentiators so that we can tell them Thank apart. Thank you, Gary. But the great thing about that is it's also a great little masterstroke of visual storytelling that you get and, and visual character work. You get the sense that if you had the opportunity to sit any one of these characters down and ask them, how did you lose your eye, or how did your face get burned, or how did you lose your arm, like what happened to you in the war? They would each have their own kind of fascinating and probably quite horrifying story to tell. So just by just the moment that you look at them, you go, oh yeah, these guys have seen some shit, and they've all, and they've all had their own you know, unique experience. No one has really come back whole from this war. They've all come back with, with, with scars, some, some on the outside, some on the inside, some both. And... Um, the idea of giving them the uh, Shakespearean names was, again, a kind of a reference to the idea that when they were created, they're not created with names. They, pro- they all just had serial numbers um, because, you know, they're, they're not meant to have personalities or lives. They're really just meant to pick up a gun and go into battle. And so they have serial numbers or QR codes or whatever on them, but they're not um, they're not considered individuals in that in that regard. It's like, yeah, I always remember somebody said to me once, like, the reason why on a, on a, on a farm, like, you never name uh, you never name the pigs is that sooner or later you're going to have to slaughter them. Mm-hmm. And it's that much harder to do it once you've given them a name, because when you give them a name, you give them a personality and they start to feel a little bit human. So I think it was a conscious decision in the, in the backstory of this world of the kind of the human commanders to not give them names so that it would be easier to kind of commit them into these horrifying battles because they were just seen as, as war material. They were just seen as kind of cannon fodder rather than, you know, living, uh, you know, real human beings. And so when they come back, 
from the war and they still only have their serial numbers. They don't know that's all they have as, as, as unique identifiers. They desperately want to feel human. I think, you know, if you create something from human stock, from human DNA, whether you want it to or not, and we've seen, seen all kinds of um, uh, science fiction grapple with this issue, of course, that they want to, they, 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 they're craving that humanity, even though it's not something that is necessarily endemic to them. They want it. They really, they really, you know, feel like they need it. Um, and so the idea was that they decided they would decide that they would give themselves human names and that would help them feel a bit more human and a bit more real and a bit, you know, one step away from the, uh, the serial numbers that they had. Uh, but how do you, where do you come up with the names? How do you know what everyone's going to be called? So one of the, there was this idea that at some point they had found the complete works of Shakespeare in one of these bombed out houses and just started picking names out of there and handing them out. And so there were plenty of names to go around. And uh, that's how that's how you wind up with a you know a Prospero, Horatio, a Banquo, uh, an Oliver. Uh, <laughs> you know they they pick the name from As You Lie. I was so I was so hopeful because I love this idea of the names coming from Shakespeare from Shakespearean literature. I remember googling it, going, "Oh my God, please tell me that somewhere there's an Oliver <laughs> in a Shakespeare story." And there is one. He's in As You Like It, and that's how that's how we were able to uh, to find it. And I did love that little moment. I, I also write for Book Riot, so I especially, and this is an itty-bitty spoiler, I'm sorry. That's really, that really lovely moment in this horrible, bombed-out, irradiated London where they go and pull a book off a shelf to pick <laughs> this little boy's name. It's, this, it's just this really lovely moment in this hor- horrific destroyed world yeah that's that might, great that's, that's funny that might be a theme with me because i did it with the book of eli as well the idea that even <laughs> after a horrible war like they always you always end up in a library the idea that the books have to survive like even you, you end up in the eli you're going to end up in a library mm-hmm. we have a library at the beginning of this one i think there is the idea that um even after the most horrible you know because books are so there's there's so many you know hundreds of millions of them in the world um that uh even after the most horrible war so some of them would survive because I think there are people out there that would make it their business to ensure that they survive. That's My great though. It brings us back around that with like that moment with Oliver is, is a hopeful moment. Like you were saying, it's he even there just getting his name. It, he's acting out what I think thematically the character represents in this story. Something that I think is interesting is that, you know, the, the story, like you, we were saying, you know, you wrote it back in what, 2001, somewhere around there. And as you were saying about the story with with the with the soldiers here, is that you know they they were created for one purpose, and when they came home, they were not welcome. They they didn't have a home to come back to, and I'm sure a lot of that was coming from what you were seeing in the news around you around 2001, 2002, and you know the time immediately following 9/11, and that you know the wars that were happening and soldiers going away and coming home and people fighting about whether this was a just war or not, but. In the intervening years, I feel like this story has only become more relevant, which is a little distressing. You know, in over 20 years, the, the, the situation that we saw then hasn't really gotten any better. And the story that you're telling was relevant then, and it's just as relevant now. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit depressing to hear that your post-apocalyptic story has only become more relevant, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's not much... There's not much good to be said about the state of the world in that situation. But yeah, I mean, we, we really do live in really... Um, I think it's that there have been a number of articles written now, and I've had a number of conversations with my writer friends about how it's it's not easy to write in this environment. Like, how do you write how do you write science fiction? How do you write dystopia? How do you write post-apocalyptic fiction in a world in which reality is so often seen to be outstripping mm-hmm. even our wildest you know uh, horrors that we can imagine? 
Um, you know, we, we, we're, we're, we're living in this kind of slow burn version of idiocracy where we're just kind of get dragged, you know, kind of down and down into the toilet more and more. Um, I mean, somebody, somebody, there was a, the, the picture yesterday of, of, uh, of Trump with all the hamburgers on, oh. the, on the table. Uh, was, I mean, you know, if, if I, if that, let's say if Trump had never happened and you'd, and you'd have written his presidency as, you know, speculative, uh, dystopian fiction, nobody would have bought it. They would have said it, well, it, it didn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, credible, but you know, as, as, as a wise man once told me, the only difference between fiction and real life is that, is that fiction has to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, um, let, let, let me switch gears just for a few minutes. Um, Gary, you we had you on the show before, and it was right uh, in the wake of publishing Abomination uh, with Ink Shares. And I just wanted to ask you, now that that was several years ago, in retrospect, what was that experience like going through Ink Shares? Do you think that it was a success? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we sold plenty of copies. And, and again, I for me, the bar is pretty low. I just want to get the story out there. I just want to get it published or produced and put in front of an audience. It doesn't have to be the biggest success ever. I think Abom- I can't remember how many copies of Abomination we sold in the end. I think about 50,000 or something. But people – and that's like – that's a decent number. It's not like blockbuster numbers, but it's not a flop either. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. I think it did okay. And, you know, honestly, writers need – uh, the, the the care the care and feeding of writers is often is, is often actually fairly simple. All we need is a little bit of validation, a, l- a little compliment <laughs> every now and again. I have a you know I have, I have an email um, uh, on my website that people can reach out to me on or through my Facebook, and every now and again, um, I'll just get a message from someone saying, "Hey, you know, Book of Eli really meant something to me, or I really liked Abomination, or thank you for Rogue One, or whatever it might be." And that's, you know, even, even on my darkest days, just that, just that little shot in the arm. Oh, my God, somebody actually, I'm sitting here going, Gary, you can't write. You're terrible. You're a, you're a fraud. You're, you're an imposter. You're going to get found out any day now. Your stuff's no good. You're mediocre at best. You know, all the, all the thoughts that go through your head when you're, when you're a creative person, all that imposter syndrome stuff. And then you get, you know, one, one little bit of validation from someone saying, oh, you know, this movie meant something to me or I really love that comic or whatever it might be. Um, like he wrote it's, a, it's, enough to kind of get, it's enough to get you through the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I will say Abomination. I am not a fan of like. I mean, I enjoy horror. I'm not a fan of like the gross out torture, super bloody horror. Um, but Abomination, and I'm not saying that was what Abomination was. Uh, but it definitely has its scenes of graphic violence and horror. But I loved it. I thought it was just so much fun to read that book. So I take that as, I take that as a really good. I, I take that as a really good compliment that is, that you didn't like horror, but you still like this book because even though I don't think of it as horror, it is pretty horrific. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are you both working on right now? In addition to Oliver, Derek, what uh, that's my. That's my primary focus right now. It's like now that the book is coming out monthly, uh, starting next week, uh, Wednesday, January twenty third. Um, I'm so everybody knows when to go get it. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I'm making sure that uh, I get issues three and four finished so they will launch on time. I don't want uh, anybody going to the comic book store empty handed mm-hmm. um, when they if they want to read more Oliver and this. And you could see the level of detail I'm putting into it. It's going to be a real challenge to keep that level of detail up going forward because i've had a lot of time yeah. for these first couple issues but uh the monthly crunch is going to start setting in on me so i'm focusing on that primarily 
Yeah, the first issue is is, is beautiful. I, mean, I can only imagine what, what what's coming down the road with future issues. But yeah, at least for the first issue, man, it is just spot on brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, um, Gary, are you working on another novel? I am. It's literally it's it's open on my screen right now. I have seventy five thousand one hundred forty seven words of it so far. So uh, maybe another five or ten thousand to go, and I'll have a second book. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, we will definitely be looking out for that. Um, I cannot wait for future issues of Oliver. This is it's been. Um, I I don't I read a lot of comics, but I don't really keep up on what's coming. So I like to be surprised when things seemingly appear out of nowhere. And I will be honest that Oliver kind of appeared out of nowhere. I wasn't really aware of it until it it landed on my desk, and um, it's been one of the best surprises of recent memory. So well, thank you I'm, so much. I'm that along for the really ride. Happy. Thank you so much. That that's really that. Um, it's so hard to. Actually, you'd think with the internet and everything, it would be easier to get the message out. But it's like when everybody's talking, it's like yep. trying to have your voice heard at a stadium, you know? Yeah. Um, Are you guys but, going to be talking about it in real life anywhere? Any cons coming up? <laughs> we have a signing coming up at Two Cats Comics in San Francisco um, uh, the weekend following the release. So the 27th, is it, Carrie? Saturday. Uh, so if you're in San Francisco and you want to come out and meet us, we'll be signing copies and taking questions. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The 27th. Yeah. Happy, happy to see you. Are you going to be at Emerald city? Uh, I don't have any plans for that at this time. (laughs) (laughs) Darn. No, I'm sorry. I'm I'm trying to keep my schedule really light until I have Oliver three and four, uh, put to bed because, uh, when I travel, it takes a lot out of my schedule and, uh, you know, it's stamina. I got to come back and kind of stick to the deadlines. So at this point, <laughs> I want to make sure nothing interrupts us getting this book out on time. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care.